0: Amen. And I'm so glad that you're with us today. I want to take a moment at the end of the service to talk about where we're going and kind of really more than anything else, why we're going to do what we're going to do in the next few weeks. So stay tuned for that. But the first thing that we want to do is dive into the scriptures, as is our custom here at Pulpit Rock. Uh, You'll remember, after Easter, we started a series called One More Thing, where I used just the very cool, very cutting-edge reference of the 70s TV show Columbo, Uh, and it was this a detective show in the 70s where there was this detective columbo who would always have the same thing happen every episode where he would be interviewing a suspect and he would get ready to leave and then he'd say hey there's just one more thing and then he'd say the most important thing about solving the case and we were comparing that to what Jesus did after he's died he's risen from the dead he's getting ready to ascend and leave the earth and go into heaven and then there's these handful of conversations where he's like there's just one more thing I wanted to add they're really important conversations. And so a couple weeks ago, we saw that moment where he finally left, like he ascended into heaven, he's gone, he's no longer on the earth, and you may have thought that was his last word, but in true Columbo fashion, Jesus comes back to say just one more thing to a man named Saul in Acts chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and find Acts chapter 9. What results in this conversation is uh, probably the most dramatic conversion story in all the Bible. Now, I'm going to use that word conversion... Uh, It it kind of, when I hear it, it always makes me think, it's very spiritual sounding, it's very complicated, but I really think there's something with this whole idea of conversion or finding faith in Jesus that often it's easy to miss and it's really simple and beautiful. It's this idea that I was reminded of just a few months ago. I was uh, with my wife, we were babysitting for some of our friends, Nate and Katie Beth Huntley. Hello, Nate, Katie Beth, they're probably watching Um, And we were babysitting their two adorable little girls, Allie, Beth, and Cora. And Cora is maybe three years old, and my son Grant, uh, who's 15, was playing hide-and-seek with Cora. And so Grant is sitting on the couch, so he says, the couch is base. I'm going to count to ten. You have to go hide. And Cora takes like a couple of steps after Grant's eyes are closed, and she crouches down behind a chair just a few feet away from Grant. And so I'm standing there, I'm like, well, let's just see how this goes. So Grant eventually gets to ten. He says, ready or not, here I come. And as soon as he says that, Cora jumps up from behind the chair and says, did you see me behind the chair? (laughs) She didn't even give him a chance to look for her at all. And it was so adorable. And my first thought was, maybe we need to go over those rules a little bit again because I don't think she really understands it. But then I looked at her face and she, it was so full of joy, and she was smiling from ear to ear, and she didn't care at all about the rules. She wasn't trying to win the game. What Cora wanted was to just be found. That's what she wanted. Uh, she couldn't wait, so she skips right to the end, and that, that makes perfect sense when you're a kid. Why wait for it with all the hiding, just skip to the fun part? Have you ever played hide-and-seek and no one found you? That is discouraging. I, I, I can remember that as a kid. It's like, I've got a good hiding place. I am so excited. No one's ever going to find me. And then like 20 minutes later, you realize no one is looking anymore. So you wander out. And you realize all your friends have been doing something else for a while. That is, that's like the last time you play that game because it's not a very fun game if you never get found. That is the point of the game. That's what Cora knew. So she didn't waste any time. She skipped to the moment where she got found. We talk about conversion. Uh, We talk about that a lot as Christians, that you become a Christian. And a lot of times we think about this as something that we do. In fact, we use phrases like, I found God, or I found Jesus. Like he was in this really good hiding spot, but I followed the clues and I discovered him. And I think what we forget is that Jesus is a lot more like Korah than he is like us. He loves being found by us. He's trying to get found by us, just like Korah was. And when there's this moment when uh, somebody says, hey, I I think there is a loving God out there. I I think about this Jesus. I, I think he actually is who he says he is. And they find faith for the first time. That is Jesus' greatest joy. I don't know if you've ever pictured the face of Jesus like when you found him for the first time or you, when you converted um, and said, hey, I, I believe he is who he says he is. But we should not picture like this head shaking Jesus, arms crossed because oh, it's about time you found me. No, I think we should picture the face of Korah uh, smiling from ear to ear. Jesus loves to be found by us. He's eager to be found by us, and that is what is true of every conversion. So what I want to do is I want to dive into this very dramatic story with Jesus and Saul, the moment when Jesus jumps up from behind the chair and says to Saul, Hey, did you see me here? Um, and I want to see if we can't learn something about how we find Jesus. So, uh, it starts in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse, uh, verse 1, actually. The author says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So meanwhile, that's a pretty big meanwhile in this case. What's been happening is Jesus ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes and it indwells all believers. It's the same Holy Spirit that you and I have. And what happened to them is they got transformed into these powerful witnesses to the death and the resurrection of Jesus and all that that means. And when they started doing that, a lot of conversions started happening. A lot of people who didn't previously believe in Jesus They heard the testimony, and then they found Jesus, and that was spreading like wildfire through Jerusalem, and with that spread came some persecution, Um, because those who were in power, they were worried that they were losing their power, and that persecution culminated uh, in the murder of a leader in the early church, a man named Stephen, and the brain behind that murder was Saul, but still, they couldn't stop it. Even with that murder, they could not stop it. People were finding Jesus every day. And because a lot of these people had traveled to Jerusalem, um, they went back home and they would take this message and this gospel of Jesus back home and they would spread it to others. And so Saul is here. He's heading to a nearby city. He's heading to Damascus to round up some of these people who had been spreading the news in this nearby city. So you read that and you think, man, this Saul character, he must be a pretty awful guy. And maybe he was, but I do think it's an oversimplification to just say he's a bad guy. What's more true is this. Saul had a passion for what was right. That's what he cared about. He was not setting out to murder people. What he was setting out to do was to defend the living God from heretics. That was his mindset. And there's this incredible irony in Saul's early life. Like, how could somebody who is so concerned about God wind up working against this God that he was trying to defend? How does that even happen? You know, Paul wrote a good chunk of the New Testament, and he even tells us at times about his early life. He talks about it, and he mentions a few things that were at work. One thing that he mentions is he was very sectarian in his orientation, meaning what he was focused on was his group. What he was focused on is the perspective that his group, his people, shared. He also was obsessed with holiness and righteousness. Now, later he becomes obsessed with this concept of grace, that we cannot be righteous enough, but that God gives us his righteousness. But at this point in his life, he was obsessed with who is righteous and who is not. And he also says this, he says he, is, he was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Meaning he, he was trying to defend his people's historical way of life from all of the wicked influences of the world. And in the, that obsession, what he wasn't able to see, what he didn't realize, is that the God was doing something new. God was doing something that had never happened in the history of God's people. And I think there's something about this that stands as a warning for us in our day. Like We just need to realize that when we become really focused on defending the way things used to be, or we become really focused on who is righteous and who is not righteous, or we become really focused on protecting the perspective of our group, it becomes so incredibly easy to miss the new thing that the living God is doing on earth. That's what Saul was doing. He was just missing it. That's what he was. He was so obsessed with his group, he couldn't see it. So he heads off to Damascus. Heads off to defend God from all of the evil influences of Jesus' followers. Verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So Jesus, he's standing up from behind that chair saying, Saul, do you see me here? Here I am. He says, why do you persecute me? Notice his present tense. It's not like past tense, like I used to be alive. He is alive, and he's announcing that to Saul. Verse five, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Think, think about those three days. Like Think about all the thoughts that must have filled Saul's head. Like this was the moment where it came crashing down on him, that he realized that God was not who he thought he was, that he was wrong, that he actually, he had been opposing this God that he loved so much. These were the days that he realized just how short-sighted he'd been and how big God intended his kingdom to become. Because if Jesus was alive, then surely he was the Messiah and this kingdom was not going to be anything like the kingdom that Saul expected. Now, the story takes a turn in verse 10 because none of us convert without a little bit of help from others, so God makes sure Saul receives that. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask uh, for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You know, it seems God is really telling this Jesus follower, Ananias, hey, you don't get to have enemies here. That's not part of the kingdom. You know, if ever there was an enemy of God's people, it was Saul. Ananias is not wrong, but God says, listen, I love being found by anyone, by everyone. And that's why as believers, I think we we have to root for people as much as God does, because as soon as they find him, they become our brothers and sisters. That's what happens here. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And Saul, he begins to be known by his Greek name, Paul, and he begins to be this defender of grace and the strongest advocate for including anyone at the table who finds Jesus, even and especially those unholy Gentiles like us. That's all of us. And he has this 180-degree turnaround, and he heads in the opposite direction of his life because he found Jesus. That's conversion. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. And it's so dramatic. It gives us this picture of what finding Jesus is about. And every conversion I know is different. Every one of our stories of conversion is going to be a little bit different. None of our stories are like Saul's story but I think in Saul's story, we can see a few powerful truths about what conversion is really about. This is the first one that I would notice. First of all, there is no conversion without humility. There's no conversion without humility. Now, in Saul's life, Jesus introduces it like all at once, right? And I'm so thankful that often with us, he is a bit more gentle. But that humility is necessary. And Saul has this moment where he realized, I have made a terrible mistake. I was trusting myself. I thought I knew what mattered. And all at once, he found out how terribly wrong he has been. And I bet that really stung. It stings all of us. And there was these three days where he was left with this awareness that God was actually here on earth And because of his arrogance, he missed him. And that had to sting. But that moment of humility, it's it's for all of us, that is a part of conversion, is we don't find Jesus without humility. That leads to the second part of this, though. The second part of every conversion is this. There is no conversion without seeing Jesus as the answer. Seeing Jesus, not ourselves, but seeing Jesus as the answer. And you get a picture of Saul that he's working so hard to honor God, to do something worthwhile, to protect God. He had this zeal, the sort of zeal that, uh, that someone who thinks they can actually succeed has. And his zeal was for righteousness. And then all at once he realizes, gosh, my most brilliant, passionate efforts produce nothing, produced worse than nothing. They produced the opposite. And he had this realization that if he was going to find life, that if he was going to figure out the spiritual thing, it was going to have to come from somewhere outside of himself. And here standing in front of him is the living Jesus. And either Saul was going to go back to his Saul-centered plan uh, of trying to effort his way to God, or he was going to trust that this answer was going to be found in something else and specifically found in Jesus. And that is a part of every con- conversion, that realization that we need saving, and the saving is going to have to come from from somewhere outside of ourselves, saving from sin, from brokenness, from purposelessness. We need saving from that. And if we're going to have a spiritual life, that we in and of ourselves are not up to the spiritual task. And that's the third thing that we see in Saul's life. After this moment of humility, and then this moment where he begins to trust that maybe Jesus has the answer instead of him, there is a third thing that we see. He turns from what he is doing to what Jesus wants for him. There's like this tangible redirection in his life. Saul was a man on a mission. He knew exactly what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it, and he immediately cancels that mission, and he heads in a new direction, which makes sense if you just realize that your arrogance has gotten you in trouble and you don't know how to save yourself. You know Jesus calls that turning repentance which is another word that sounds really spiritual and complicated but it's just it's a part of every conversion our life just gets reoriented we start caring about things that maybe we never cared about and we turn towards those things that Jesus wants for us so there's a moment of humility and there's trusting that Jesus is the one with the answer, and then there's this turning. That's conversion in a nutshell. That's what it's all about. That's how we find faith. We kind of get over ourselves first of all, and then we trust him, and then we just start following him as best we can. That is conversion. Now, if, if you're not sure, like kind of where you stand with God or really where you stand with Jesus or what you think about him, can I just, I just want to talk to you for a moment because this is a conversion story. I, there is a God behind it all. And I know it's hard to believe sometimes because this world is so convoluted and so complicated. Sometimes it is hard to see, but I, I know this too. That in the quietness of your heart, you know that we're not alone. We have not been left alone. And the good news is this, not only is God there, not only does he exist, but he is really good. And he genuinely loves you. He genuinely is interested in you, and he knows you. And his biggest hope is that you would find him that you would discover him and that he could walk with you through all of the ups and all of the downs that are to come in your life. And the reality is, even at the end of our lives, even after death, that he is still there. And we believe all of this because we believe that he came to earth, that he was Jesus, and he lived and he died for our sins and he rose from the dead so that we could know that this broken And convoluted world is not all that there is, that there's more. And if you've been feeling maybe a little bit of humility of heart like Paul got all at once, or if you've been feeling like maybe your pride's not helping you, and maybe if there is an answer for your life that it's going to have to come from someplace else, if you're feeling like maybe you need to turn away from some things, Like, I want you to know what's happening in that moment. That that is Jesus trying to get your attention. That is Jesus standing up from behind the chair saying, Hey, do you see me? I'm really here. And we experience conversion, that word, when we just say yes to Jesus. We say, I believe that you're actually there. I believe that you've forgiven my sins, that you love me, that you're restoring me. And the Bible tells us that when we do that, that same Holy Spirit that filled the early believers fills us. And we learn to walk with him day by day, walking with God in faith. And wherever you are, if you have never had a conversion moment, like I just want to invite you, to just consider that he's standing up in your life saying, Hey, do you see me here? Just like he did for Saul those years ago. And maybe just say yes to him. And if you do, Please talk to others about it. Talk to us about it. You can even talk. I think there's something in our little chat thing online that you could click on or something. Uh, Or just email me personally. Uh, The point is this. There is a God who is so eager for you to find him. Now, if you've already had a conversion moment, like uh, many of us, you, you say, I found Jesus years ago. I want to say something very important to you too, and it's this. What is true of conversion moments should be true of every moment. And so in some sense, this life with Christ, it is kind of like a long conversion moment. Just like there's no conversion without humility, there's also no walking with Jesus without humility. I don't know, do you see yourself in Saul on the road to Damascus? I sure do. Like, he felt so, so justified. Like, he was so confident in the rightness of his perspective. Then Jesus shows up, and suddenly it's like he seems really foolish all of a sudden. Are there areas in your life where you have that same sort of confidence, just so confident in the rightness of your perspective? Maybe it's a political perspective. There's a lot of that going around. Maybe it's a theological perspective that you're just so confident. Maybe it's a broken relationship where you are sure that the other person's wrong far outweighs your own. Here's what I want to say. There's no conversion without humility, but there's also no walking with Jesus without humility. Jesus does not coexist well with our pride. And one of the things that he does when he shows up in our life is he begins to dismantle it because his presence automatically just highlights the foolishness of our pride and our overconfidence. It just does. That's why the hallmark of people who walk with Jesus regularly is just humility of heart. Um, His presence has a way of revealing our arrogance The foolishness of trusting ourselves. And I would also say that just like there's no conversion without trusting Jesus, there is no walking with Jesus without trusting him as the answer, not ourselves. Too often, I think we have that realization that we really need a Savior, that there's something needed in our lives, and gosh, is that uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for Saul. It's uncomfortable for us. But in that moment, we we realize it, and so we put faith in Jesus, and then real quickly, we run back to what is most comfortable, which is doing it ourselves. I know none of us love to feel needy. but those who walk with Jesus are able to live with and just embrace that uncomfortable truth that we really do need him. And not just for salvation, but daily dependence, that that's what we need. Without his daily help, we become these unwitting victims of our own brokenness. And that forces us to turn to him again and again. And that's also true, just like with conversion. Uh, There has to be turning to Jesus. It's also true that there is no walking with Jesus without regularly turning towards him. Again and again, because we drift again and again. And maybe those of us who need to hear this message of conversion most are those of us who are most confident in our conversion experience, because that turning was never intended to be a one-time thing, right? It's actually intended to be a daily thing. So there's humility, there's trusting Jesus, not ourselves, and then there's turning again and again towards him. That's how we find Jesus, but that also is how we walk with him. And it's great for us to be able to say, hey, I found Jesus. I've, I've converted years ago, I found Jesus years ago. But I think the better question for us is, are we finding him today? Are we finding him today? Is he dismantling our pride? Are we less dependent on our own efforts? Are we becoming more dependent on his guidance? Are we turning towards him again and again daily? As I close, what I want you to just picture today is this. The face of Jesus popping up in your life. You could even picture that that hide-and-seek illustration. Picture it like Cora's face in that game, popping up from behind the chair, so delighted at the hope that you would find him. Just like he did with Paul, he is eager to be found by you, and he is overjoyed at the thought that you would open your eyes and see him in your life. That starts with conversion, but every day, We discover him anew. And that's what creates in us the humility and the trust and the turning. My prayer for you today is that you would just simply discover Jesus, even if you have already. Let me pray this over you. Lord, we trust that you're there. We trust that you are eager to be found by us. God, give us humility of heart. It's hard for us, but create that in us. God, give us trust that you have answers, you have guidance that we need to find. Lord, give us repentant hearts, hearts that are quick to repent, that turn often towards what you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.